Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. The springs were drying up, and Goliath didn't want to buy us. He wanted to stomp us into the ground. Mark Randolph. Every morning in Santa Cruz, California, two co-workers carpooled to work. They'd take turns picking each other up and driving round the winding mountain highway to Silicon Valley, where they both worked at a software company. The pair had an interesting relationship because one of them, Mark Randolph, had helped found a company that had just been purchased by the other, Reed Hastings. Meaning, Randolph was now in possession of a substantial chunk of change— but it also meant his position at the company would soon become obsolete. So, on their hour-long commute to and from the Bay Area, Randolph decided he would use the time to come up with his next big idea. And what better ear to bend than that of a tech company CEO? The entrepreneurs kicked around ideas like a hacky sack, tweaking, tabling, or torching various concepts day in and day out. Randolph knew the best idea would be a disruptor. It was 1997, the beginning of the dot-com bubble. 
when the possibilities of the internet seemed boundless and all eyes and wallets turned to emerging web-based companies. He thought about custom-blended pet food, bespoke shampoo, surfboards, no, custom baseball bats. But Hastings shook his head. Those'll never work. Randolph said in his book that Hastings was quick to evaluate an idea's pros and cons, provide high-speed, cost-benefit analysis, and near-instantaneous predictive model about possible risks and scalability. He says Hastings didn't waste time with niceties. He'd already nixed 95 concepts already. Then Randolph threw out another idea. What about videotape rental? Hastings paused and stared out the window, then said, maybe. That very morning, once the pair pulled into their corporate parking spot, an excited Randolph met with a group of colleagues to help him shape his idea. Video rental at the time was an $8 billion industry, and in all their collective experience, it was ripe for disruption. Blockbuster was founded about 10 years earlier and had quickly risen to the top, becoming the number one video rental company in the U.S., with over 6,000 locations globally by the mid-90s. Brick-and-mortar rental was the most popular way to watch a movie that was no longer playing in theaters, aside from actually buying a new copy each time. With state-of-the-art checkout technology and the capacity to stock thousands of titles at any given store, Blockbuster became a staple of family movie night. But yet, at the same time, customers had grievances. They were sick of fighting over limited copies of new releases, of waiting in line, and, most of all, they were sick of late fees. Hastings was once saddled with a $40 late fee. It's reported that Blockbuster raked in $800 million in late fees alone in the year 2000. So, with the advent of the internet and e-commerce, why hadn't Blockbuster ventured into the world of buy-mail rental? Well, there was a very good reason for that. Back in the 90s, VHS was the format of choice when it came to home video players. People around the world picked up, watched, then rewound their movies, or didn't, before returning them to their local video store. And while it would have been convenient to avoid the trip to the store altogether, VHS tapes were heavy which meant shipping them to and from customers would have cost a fortune. When Randolph floated the idea of male video rental by his wife one night while spoon-feeding their young son spaghetti, she echoed the very same concerns. She said, that will never work. But being a tech CEO, Reed Hastings had his finger on the pulse. He was constantly reading about emerging trends in the field, and one day, he heard about a technology being test-marketed in San Francisco. It was called a digital video disc, or DVD. And it was poised to become the next big thing. Here's why that mattered. DVDs didn't require the magnetic tape that VHS did, making them light and compact, 
like a CD and much more affordable to mail. So one day, when Hastings and Randolph took their usual route to work, they decided to put their idea to the test. They pulled over at the nearest record store and bought Patsy Cline's greatest hits. Then, they walked two doors down to the nearest greeting card store and bought a card. It had two puppies on the front sitting in a wicker basket barking, Happy Birthday. Sadly, they threw the puppies away, and they dropped the CD into the envelope, slapped a 32-cent stamp on the top right corner, and mailed it to Hastings' house. The very next morning, Hastings found the pink envelope in his mailbox. The entire operation was affordable, fast, and most importantly, the CD arrived intact. So, in September of 1997, it was decided. They would start a by-mail video company that would rent and sell DVDs. The first order of business was funding. Coming from the tech world, they already had a list of names that would make ideal investors. Top of that list was a major player in the video and DVD world, a Harvard alum and Silicon Valley CEO. So they went to his office to make a pitch. They told him about their plan to be early adopters of the DVD and how much easier they would be to ship and monetize. But halfway through their spiel, the fancy CEO stopped them. He told them their idea was garbage. He said once movies went digital, DVDs would go straight to the landfill. Randolph told him they figured they had at least five years before that happened. And the fancy CEO said, why should I invest in a company that won't be around five years from now? The pair left the office deflated, nervous, and rejected they'd have to get their funding elsewhere. Randolph's mother offered to put up some capital, he says, likely to support her son, not because she believed in the idea. They managed to convince a couple of their friends and contacts to come on board, and Hastings put up just shy of $2 million. With DVD technology being brand new and the first ever DVD players going on sale that year, Hastings and Randolph wouldn't be able to offer the same kind of inventory of films that Blockbuster could. Only 125 titles were available on DVD so far, so they'd have to beat Blockbuster to the punch. They assembled a small team and found themselves a makeshift office, the Scotts Valley Best Western Conference Room. Eventually, they secured their own space at a local business center. It was a former bank building. Christina Kish, who would be their VP of merchandising, said the team had no idea what they were doing. They got folding tables and beach chairs and soon covered every square inch of them in a mess of papers. But at least the office carpet was green, which she says was decidedly lucky because green was the color of money. As 1997 turned into 98, more and more titles were released or converted into DVD format. Soon, there were 3,000 available, and they'd need more than one copy of each. 
Storing every DVD ever made required massive amounts of space. But fortunately, housing your business in a former bank had its perks. At the back of the office was a large vault with a giant round steel door. Inside, they installed shelves to house thousands and thousands of movies. Next, they hired an industry expert to teach them everything they could possibly learn about the video rental business, including how to create a website that met a movie lover's every need, minus the pain points of Blockbuster. But before they could design the logo, they needed a name. While the team amassed their inventory and built their website, they needed a working title for the masthead, not to mention their letters of incorporation, a beta name. Randolph remembered the old advertising adage, it doesn't make a difference how good the ads are if the dogs don't eat the dog food. In other words, nothing kills a bad product like good marketing. So he says, based on that timeless truth, and perhaps subconsciously the two puppies in a wicker basket, they decided to temporarily call themselves Kibble. They bought the kibble.com domain name, and their emails became mark at kibble.com. But there was another reason they chose Kibble. Because they were advised to pick a name that was bad. Randolph says it's common in startups that a company will pick a beta name just for the interim. But then as the launch looms closer and closer and the team gets more and more exhausted, choosing a real name falls to the bottom of the list and keeping the beta name starts looking mighty tempting. So, Kibble it was. They could never call their company Kibble. Next, they contacted the top movie influencers at the time, people who reviewed films and whose opinions were trusted, in the hopes they'd share the website with their following. Then they figured out the perfect mailer in which to send their DVDs, including the most intuitive way for customers to send those DVDs back. They landed on pre-printed return labels, so customers could stick their movies right back into their mailbox for next-day pickup. And soon, launch day was around the corner. The team wheeled a whiteboard over to the center of the room. They knew their brand name had to do a lot of heavy lifting. It needed to be evocative and creative, but it also had to represent the actual service it was providing. It needed to be available, and it couldn't be offensive in any other language. Their brand boiled down to two key words, internet and movies. So they scrawled some options across the whiteboard. Webflix, eFlix, Fast Forward, Take Two, Netflix, and some lean toward Cinema Center. But overall, they couldn't come to a consensus, and they were running out of time. Suddenly, Kibble made its way back onto the board. Then someone threw out Netflix, CKS. But it was quickly vetoed. Netflix sounded a little too much like Skinflix. Plus, the domain name was already taken. That's when someone else said, what about Netflix with an X? 
but the addition of the X did very little to assuage the pornography concerns. So they decided to all take a night and sleep on it. The next morning, the team returned to the office refreshed and re-examined the list. And slowly but surely, they all started to zero back in on one name in particular. Netflix. April 14, 1998, was the official Netflix launch day. They hoped in the first month to fulfill a hundred orders. The team set up a bell in the office that would go off every time an order came in. They hit publish on their site and hoped to God that bell would ring. Then they heard, then, then, They'd received so many orders that their system crashed. It was a problem they never could have foreseen, perhaps the best kind a startup can have. They started running around to local computer stores buying more equipment. The flustered two-man IT department tried to figure out how to put a sorry we're closed sign onto the Netflix landing page. It was sheer madness. But by 2 p.m., they ran out of mailers, tape, and ink. They had 108 orders, surpassing their first month's goal. Randolph couldn't believe it. Over the course of that summer, Netflix surpassed all Randolph and Hastings' goals. In no time at all, they reached their first $100,000 month. But here's the bad news. Only 1,000 of that 100,000 came from renting DVDs. The rest came from selling DVDs. And though Netflix was first on the DVD scene, it wouldn't be long before Amazon and Walmart started selling them too. Meaning, Netflix would have its margins taken out from under them in no time. So they had to make an almost unfathomable decision. To take the part of their business that was profitable and remove it from the equation. DVD sales may have been making them money, but banking on those was like knowingly boarding the Titanic. Netflix would have to walk away from the income that was paying 99% of their company's salaries to focus on rentals full-time. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Mark Randolph says walking away from 99% of your revenue forces you to focus your mind on the problem. If they wanted to make money on rentals, they'd have to change their system. They noticed customers would rent one movie, but not come back. Or if they did come back, it was a while before they made another transaction. Netflix needed something that would keep customers interested. So Randolph and Hastings came together to come up with this newfangled thing called a DVD subscription service. Basically, Netflix customers could become subscribers and queue the next set of movies they'd like mailed to them automatically, all for $20 per month, of course, without any late fees. They launched the new subscription service with a banner front and center at the top of their landing page. They were hoping 20% of users would engage at best. But what happened next, nobody could have predicted. 90% of users who clicked on their banner entered their credit card information onto the site. It was so wildly successful, they decided to transition away from their a la carte model altogether and adopt the subscription model full-time. And Randolph says... That's the moment he knew they were really onto something. The Netflix team knew growing their customer base relied on the steady sale of a single product, DVD players. It was in their best interest to entice as many VHS movie lovers as possible over to the new technology and to let new DVD player owners know about their service. So Randolph set up meetings with all the major electronics companies. He approached Sony and was rejected. Next, he knocked on Panasonic's door and was rejected. Then Randolph landed a meeting with Toshiba, and to his surprise, 
they struck a deal. In every DVD player Toshiba sold, they agreed to include a small Netflix promotional flyer offering three free DVD rentals. All a customer would have to do was visit Netflix.com and enter their Toshiba DVD player's serial number. For Toshiba, it was a selling point for skeptical consumers. And for Netflix, it brought them face-to-face with brand-new users. A win-win. By the year 2000, Netflix had crossed the $5 million revenue mark. And at the rate they were going, they were projected to bring in $25 million the following year. An astounding figure for a two-and-a-half-year-old business. But on the flip side, they had accumulated massive losses. $50 million to be exact. They'd amassed 200,000 subscribers. But the irony was, the more customers they had, the more money they had to spend. Randolph says they were quite literally drowning in their own success. This particular juncture is when a company would typically seek out investors, which Hastings did. He was rejected by many, accepted by some. But it was the year 2000, when the dot-com bubble burst. No one was looking to invest in fledgling internet companies. So they'd have to come up with another way to stay afloat. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, in the year 2000, Blockbuster raked in $800 million in late fees alone. The giant had 8,000 stores globally and was valued at $6 billion. So Netflix saw an opportunity. And they called Blockbuster to set up a meeting. But a week went by, and they never heard back. Weeks then turned to months, and the Netflix founders were getting nervous. Another month passed, and the Netflix team was on their first-ever company retreat in Santa Barbara when they got a phone call. It was Blockbuster's headquarters in Dallas. They said, you can come in for a meeting tomorrow morning. Randolph says the moment Blockbuster invited them to Dallas, he was standing in the hills wearing a tank top and flip-flops next to Hastings, who was in head-to-toe Hawaiian print. And the rest of the clothes in their suitcases weren't any less casual. They said Blockbuster was clearly setting them up for failure. Blockbuster knew Netflix was headquartered in California. Flying to Texas with less than 24 hours' notice was an almost impossible task. But they packed their bags and headed straight for the airport. When Randolph and Hastings arrived at the Santa Barbara airport, they ran into a second problem. There were no direct flights to Dallas, only connections, which wouldn't get them to their meeting on time. A moment of total defeat washed over them. Then Hastings had an idea. He said, So we fly private. A private jet to Dallas would cost them $20,000. For a company $50 million in the hole, spending more money was out of the question. But Hastings had the opposite point of view. He said for a company $50 million in the hole, another $20,000 was nothing, 
especially if it might take them to the very meeting that could pull the company out of debt. So they did it. The Coppertone-clad crew chartered a private jet for a red eye to Dallas. And the very next morning, flip-flops and all, they took an elevator up to the biggest boardroom they'd ever seen. The boardroom table in Blockbuster's headquarters featured about an acre of pine. And there, drumming their fingers against the varnish, they waited. After a few minutes, Blockbuster's CEO, John Antiaco walked in, along with the company's chief legal officer. They got right down to business, and Hastings began his pitch. He proposed Blockbuster hand their online business over to Netflix to run. The Netflix team had a handle on the buy-mail rental business. What they didn't have were the resources and capital. Blockbuster, on the other hand, had the resources, but not the know-how. It was perfect synergy. Hastings explained that this way, Blockbuster could focus solely on what they did best, their stores. Antiaco thought for a moment, then asked the Netflix founders just how much they wanted Blockbuster to spend on this acquisition. Hastings swallowed, then said, $50 million. Randolph says in that moment, for a split second, he saw the corner of an otherwise stoic Antiaco's mouth curve upward, more than likely holding in a laugh. Antiaco said in the documentary Netflix vs. the World that the dot-com bubble had just exploded and a company operating at a loss was sitting in front of them asking to be bought for millions. It wasn't something Blockbuster wanted any part of. The company's chief legal officer echoed the same sentiment, adding that little businesses like Netflix would never make any money. Blockbuster at the time had 60,000 employees. Netflix had 100. So right then and there, they rejected Netflix's offer. Hastings and Randolph slunk out of the giant boardroom in silence. They stepped into the elevator in silence back onto the plane in silence, and all the way back to Santa Barbara in silence. Then Randolph said, Oh man, now we're going to have to beat them. When the blockbuster plan folded, Netflix had to make some tough decisions. As they approached 1 million subscribers, their financial trajectory continued its downward slide. So they started laying people off. People who had quit their stable jobs to jump on board their crazy idea from day one. People who believed in their vision. People who'd done nothing wrong. It was heartbreaking. But it was the only way to keep the company afloat. They were called the little bug blockbuster needed to squish. But as the Dalai Lama once said, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito in the room. Despite looking stoic in their meeting, over at Blockbuster HQ, they were getting a little nervous too. Yes, they were hoping, predicting, Netflix's financial model wouldn't hold up. But in the meantime, Blockbuster was losing customers because Netflix had identified and subverted all their long-standing pain points. 
people liked not having to go to the store anymore. They liked choosing from a vast catalog of titles online, including more niche options like indie movies and anime. And most of all, Netflix didn't charge late fees, which customers had loathed from Blockbuster for the better part of two decades. So, in an effort to retain its current customers or even win back some of its defected ones, Blockbuster made an announcement in the form of a massive advertising campaign. It was called It's Over. To the tune of Roy Orbison's hit song of the same name, Blockbuster announced its infamous late fees were a thing of the past. Gone were the days of being charged $1 for every night you put off returning your rental. It was a huge moment. As they said in the ad, you'll remember where you were the day you heard the news. Blockbuster's CEO said he wasn't entirely sure at the time if it was late fees that were over or his career. But he'd soon find out. By 2002, Netflix was growing exponentially and reported a loss of $38 million. So that same year, Reed Hastings made a game-changing announcement. The company was going public. The IPO was priced at $15 per share and instantly netted the company $80 million. Randolph said in his book that as an entrepreneur, if you're in it for the money, you're in it for the wrong reasons. $80 million was a number a startup wouldn't even let themselves think about. Just five years in, they'd turned an envelope and a Patsy Cline CD into a publicly traded company. Hastings said going public was a little bit like high school graduation. It feels like a big deal at the time, but it's really just the beginning of something new. The company was no longer a startup, but now it had a lot more riding on its success, and it wasn't the time to overextend. Blockbuster, on the other hand, decided now was the best time to overextend if they wanted to maintain their number one status. So they decided to launch a new feature called Blockbuster Online. Basically, it was a carbon copy of the Netflix site. But before they could launch, they needed some intel. So a few members of the Blockbuster team made their way over to spy on the Netflix distribution center. They pretended to be Netflix subscribers who happened to be extremely interested in the distribution process. Netflix, boasting stellar customer service, let them in. The first time. By the next time Blockbuster tried to get a closer look, Netflix caught on to their true identities. So they started labeling their equipment with fake manufacturer names. That way, Blockbuster couldn't call the same companies and have their exact equipment installed. Then, in July of 2004, Blockbuster Online launched at a lower price point than Netflix. In no time after the launch of Blockbuster Online, CBS MarketWatch reported that 70% of Blockbuster's subscribers had migrated over from Netflix. A subscription with Blockbuster was $19.99. Netflix cost $21.99. 
so Netflix retaliated, dropping their price to $17.99. Then, Blockbuster again came back with an even lower number. This time, they'd undercut Netflix so aggressively, they knew there was no way Netflix could ever compete. Blockbuster announced their online subscription would cost $14.99 per month, including two free in-store rentals. Within a single day, Blockbuster signed up more subscribers than they'd seen the entire previous month. It was working. Then Blockbuster took it one step further. They decided to offer in-store returns of buy-mail movies, meaning you could order DVDs online, then return them in-store. They called it Total Access. They hired Jessica Simpson as the spokesperson, and Blockbuster subscriptions soared, adding one million more subscribers in a single month. Except Hastings says he knew Blockbuster's website was inferior, and there was no way they could operate for very long at those prices. Blockbuster was burning cash, fast. All Netflix had to do was wait them out. So he invited John Antiaco in for a meeting. Reed Hastings made Blockbuster's CEO, John Antiaco, an offer. He proposed Netflix buy Blockbuster's subscribers for a hefty sum. There was no way Blockbuster Online could continue as is, so he tempted them with cash. Antiaco brought the proposal back to the board, but it would be one of his final moves as CEO. Shortly afterward, after failing to receive his contractual bonus, Antiaco stepped down and was replaced by the prior CEO of 7-Eleven, Jim Keyes. Now Blockbuster had a new captain at the helm, and that captain rejected Netflix's offer outright. But beyond that, Keyes decided to pivot away from the total access model and pull focus back toward their brick-and-mortar stores. It was a shocking decision. In an increasingly digital world where brick-and-mortar stores were becoming obsolete by the minute, Keyes put the brakes on their web store and started buying the then-defunct Circuit City's old buildings. That plan would not work out. Forbes reports that in that time, Blockbuster lost 75% of its market value. In 2010, Blockbuster had accumulated $1.1 billion in debt, and it filed for bankruptcy. By the late 2000s, DVDs fell out of favor, as the very first investor to reject them had predicted. But he was wrong about one thing. It didn't hobble Netflix as he suggested. In 2007, streaming arrived, and Netflix jumped on the technology. Movie lovers didn't have to go to the store or wait for the mail anymore. Content became available anytime, any place right at their fingertips. By 2010, they began expanding internationally. They launched apps across all devices, including TV, 
iPhone, Xbox, and iPad. By 2012, users reached 25 million, and the following year, they disrupted a whole new industry, announcing the launch of original content. Starting with House of Cards and followed closely by Arrested Development and Orange is the New Black, eventually making them the winningest studio at the Emmys and the Academy Awards. Between 2010 and 2019, Netflix became the best-performing stock by far on the S&P 500, declaring it the stock of the decade. In 2021, their subscriber base reached 200 million and counting. Today, Mark Randolph is no longer with the company. Randolph says he's a dreamer and a builder, but it's Reed Hastings that had the drive for scale. Hastings remains CEO to this day. Yet, Randolph says whenever he comes across a news story about Netflix movie deals, reads an interview with Hastings, or fires up the latest season of Ozark to binge, he fills with pride. Hastings says a successful company is a jazz, not a symphony. You need freedom to improvise and riff off one another to create incredible music, especially when the answer in front of you is no. The little DVD by mail company that Blockbuster rejected for $50 million is now worth $230 billion. That's what happens when you put a dreamer and a doer in a car together up a winding mountain highway. David becomes Goliath. At the heart of every new business is a dreamer. A dreamer with an idea. To the outside world, that idea often sounds crazy, frivolous, and unworkable. And as a result, dreamers run into a wall of rejection. When Mark Randolph wrote a book about co-founding Netflix, the cover said it all. The title was That Will Never Work. Because that was the line they heard over and over and over again. But here's the thing. A dreamer with zero experience can change the world. Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings didn't know anything about the video rental business. But together with a tiny group of people, they took down Blockbuster, a billion-dollar company with 60,000 employees. And dreamers don't have to be geniuses. Randolph says some of the best entrepreneurs he knows aren't the A students or the B students. They're the C students. But if you believe in your dream, you can survive the uphill battle. The idea for Netflix was rejected at every turn. By family members, by Silicon Valley CEOs, by Sony, by Panasonic, by Blockbuster, by the press, and by a long list of investors. Reed Hastings has described entrepreneurship as jumping out of a plane with the confidence you can catch a passing bird. They performed like jazz, not a symphony. They had the freedom to improvise and riff off each other, to roll up their sleeves and move in unorthodox ways. Above all, they learned to love the problem. That's how you stay engaged when things take longer than expected and when the rejections keep piling up. Because if you love the problem, truly love the problem, 
you will find the hidden solution. And you will prove all the naysayers wrong. The former CEO of Blockbuster once called Netflix a gnat, a stupid little company, a nothing. And just a few years later, that same CEO bought a hefty chunk of Netflix shares. Here's to the dreamers. Never, ever give up. Netflix. Subscribers, 207 million. Countries available, 190. Academy Awards, 15. Emmy Awards, 112. Number of blockbuster stores remaining, 1. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. We regret to inform you, our engineer is Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophepod. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think... At least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own. Uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness.